Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. Uh, this is session number 12 of Sound Undefeated. And of course, according to the original schedule, we're like almost done, <laughs> right? Except we're not. Um, and, you know, that's totally fine. Uh, Nursing Club Papers has taken longer than expected, but that's okay. Um, I have recently updated the uh, for those of you who are here uh, with me on GoToWebinar, I've recently updated the GoToWebinar thing so that um, uh, it will do the right number of episodes uh, and get us through to where we need to be uh, at the end. So we're going to be done with Sound Defeated by October is the goal. So like big picture, right? Um, big picture that we're going to be done with Sound Defeated by around the end of October. Plan is to begin uh, Wizard of Earth theme. Uh, on in like beginning of November, most likely, and then they'll probably do that between uh, between the beginning of November and like Christmas, maybe the beginning of January, uh, depending on where we fall for holidays and things like that. And then uh, we'll probably then start Morgoth's Ring sometime early uh, in the new year, like so January, February, uh, early February, I think at the absolute latest um, for. Uh, uh, for the beginning of, uh, of Morgoth's reign. So that's the, um, trajectory here. Um, and I, Stephen, I know it, uh, you know, it's not like it's a shock, right. That we're taking longer than, uh, projected. I was a little disappointed because I'd gotten pretty good at predicting, uh, you know, and staying on, making the schedule and staying on schedule during the history of Middle Earth, right. The last book was pretty good. Like the War of the Ring, we stayed on schedule pretty well. Um, but yeah, I didn't, um, I didn't, I definitely didn't figure the Notion Club papers correctly, but that's okay. So, uh, before we launch back, however, into the Notion Club papers, let me, uh, uh, let me just, oh, hang on a second. I'm getting it. Oh yeah. All right. Sorry. Twitch audio issues again. Probably the same silly problem. Okay. And there you go. Should be able to hear me now. Okay. Fine. Sorry. My microphone is uh, getting touchy, uh, which is a disappointment. But anyway, sorry. Uh, thanks, Druid's Fire, for letting me know that. But we should be okay. Um, all right. Good. Well, I'll sit. I'll be sitting a little closer, uh, Druid's Fire. Hopefully you guys can hear me okay there uh, on... Um, on the Twitch stream. Um, okay, so let me do one last thing here just to make sure. Let me turn up a little bit. Okay, well, that'll have to do. All right, excellent. Um, then, oh wait, I was going to get back to the text, except not quite yet. Uh, announcements. Um, just a couple announcements. Uh, so I not only have uh, announcements about our regional moots, which are coming up, but I have some specific things. Um, so uh, New England moot, I just wanted to confirm we are taking registration through like up to the day of the event. Um, we don't have to, uh, it, and I'm always delighted when we can do this. Uh, there's nothing I hate more than closing registration uh, way in advance of an event. Drives me crazy. Uh, so we are going to be able to have the registration open until the day, uh, the day before the event, I think. Um, not to say that it isn't a good idea to register sooner, of course, but um, 
but there is no uh, deadline other than the actual event itself for that. Uh, so that's really cool. And that deadline, of course, is the 29th of September, just a few weeks hence, here in September. Uh, and uh, we're going to be down in Amherst, Massachusetts, uh, and uh, that's going to be I'm so looking forward to New England moot. Um, uh, so that's uh, uh, so that's all really fun. And um, oh yeah, no, I'm not sharing my screen yet, but it's okay. I've not got, not got anything big going on here. Just my cover slide. Anyway, um, so um, yeah, yeah. Oh, there we go. Okay, right. So there is a de so if you um, if you want to make sure you can order your lunch, then you have to register at least three days in advance. But if you you know want to come and take your chances on lunch, you can still register uh, up to. Uh, up to the end of uh, the end of things. Uh, Matt's asking if anything is going on for Hobbit Day. Yeah, yeah, not 100% sure what yet, but definitely going to do something or other. Uh, still working on ironing that out. So, uh, but uh, but yeah, um, something's going to be something's definitely coming up. Of course, we're coming up uh, as we always do this time of year uh, on our fall fundraising campaign. Uh, so I'll be do definitely doing some announcements about that uh, soon. Hopefully next week. So. Anyway, so, yeah, New England moot. Very soon, our first gathering up here in New England. Uh, uh, so that's going to be great. So, again, just go to signumuniversity.org slash events, and you will be able to find all of the, uh, uh, all the options there for our two moots that are coming up soonest, which are New England moot, as I say, and also middle moot out in Waterloo, Iowa, on the 12th of October, which is our second soonest moot. Uh, and the announcement about that, there is a tentative schedule available now for Middlemoot. Uh, the Middlemoot people, as always, super organized. Uh, so, um, uh, again, if you go to the Middlemoot page on the signumuniversity.org slash event uh, page, you'll be able to find the details for our uh, for the schedule there, the tentative schedule uh, for that event. Um, uh, so, anyway, definitely wanted to... Um, uh, uh, put those uh, together. And yes, uh, Evil Dr. Cannon, we do have uh, text moot lined up. Text moot is definitely happening. We don't have registration open for that yet. Um, but I'm just going to try to confirm the date here. The 8th, September 8th of February. February, September 8th is when uh, Saturday, February 8th. That's, that's the day. <laughs> that's the day. Saturday, February 8th is text moot uh, this coming year. So that is certainly happening. Um, uh, yep. Yep. So that's, de and, and there are two others that should be happening even sooner than that. We're going to have two others this fall, which we're finalizing the details on Magnolia moot and Bay moot are definitely both going to be happening. Magnolia moot down near, uh, in the area of Charlotte, North Carolina, and then Bay moot out in the California Bay area, uh, around San Francisco. So those two are going to be happening pr either, Magnolia Moot is is likely to be either the last weekend of October or the first weekend of November, and Bay Moot is likely to be down towards the end of November, uh, right before Thanksgiving. That's neither one absolutely nailed down yet, but we're uh, we're getting close. We're getting very close on those. Uh, so if you're in those areas, you can you can look forward to that. And yes, also LA Moot in. Uh, uh, in, is looking very likely for late February. Got some confirmation about that uh, today as well. Super fun venue this year uh, for LA Moot uh, in particular. Um, I uh, no, I'm not going to say until it's absolutely confirmed. I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to spill that one until it's absolutely confirmed. But uh, uh, but it's going to be cool. I'm really excited. Um, 
Anyway, so lots of cool stuff coming up in the moot world, so please do keep an eye on that, including save the date. We have confirmed the dates for Myth Moot 7. Myth Moot this coming year um, will be at the end of June. It will be June 25th through 28th of 2020. That is Myth Moot 7. And the theme this year is going to be defying and defining the darkness. Defying and defining the darkness uh, is the uh, uh, is the theme of um, uh, the theme of Mythmoot for this coming year. It's based on a, a quote from the Diary of Anne Frank, actually. Um, uh, really, uh, really cool uh, theme. So anyway, that's um, that's what we're looking at for Mythmoot this year. Uh, and we're definitely going to do Mootcast again uh, for uh, for Moot. So let's see things I can confirm about Mythmoot. Same location. Uh, I, I, I love the NCC. I've really enjoyed our last few years down there uh, at Mythmoot. So same place, Leesburg, Virginia, uh, 25th to the 28th of June. Defying and defining the darkness is the theme. And the prices are going to be the same. There's not going to be any increase in the uh, costs for, the, uh, for the, uh, uh, the venue this year and stuff. So we're able to uh, keep the, the ticket prices the same as last year. Same with Mootcast as well. So those are the things that I can say about Mythmoot planning. Any reenactments planned? Well, not yet, Tomas. We'll have to see where we get. I think we might do a reenactment at Middlemood again. Like the, Middlemood is where we did the uh, uh, the uh, what do you call it? The uh, Weathertop attack last year. We might do a slightly less action-packed reenactment this year. Uh, namely, uh, we were joking. We've been talking about reenacting uh, the feast at Rivendell. Because uh, we're trying to sort out the seating arrangements at Elrond's table in in the feast in Rivendell, so we might have to do some reenactment of the seating arrangements there. Um, anyway, um, oh yeah, Karita, did you see the picture on the Mythmoot page? <laughs> you, you totally should <laughs> if you haven't, <laughs> because you're kind of featured. Um, so anyway, it's all good. Um, yeah, there's a there's a prominent picture of Asphaloth and Frodo uh, headed towards the ford uh, on the on the on the page right now. <laughs> so yeah, Karina, you should absolutely check that out. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, that is the moot news uh, that is uh, going on here. And um, there was another thing. What was the, what was my other thing? Hang on, I got to check my other thing here. Um, uh, Oh, yeah, I remember the other thing. The other thing is, so tomorrow night we're having another Silm Film session. It's been a few weeks since we've done another Silm Film session, and I had to do a new link uh, for that because I messed up the GoToWebinar thing. So we have to do a new GoToWebinar link. So those people who join me on GoToWebinar for Silm Film will need to click on the new link, which is on the Silm Film page on MythGuard.org. That was the thing. Okay. Glad I remembered the thing. Very good. Okay, so... um. With that, let us um, uh, let us get back uh, into the text here. Today's reading. Uh, uh, oh, okay. Hang on. Let me explain when I say today's reading. Um, my aspiration for today uh, is to include. I called today's class ancillary myths because uh, I want to cover the those two kind of bonus myths that uh, Tolkien has sort of folded in here. Uh, in this latter, in this second part of the Notion Club papers. We have seen him, of course, dealing very centrally with the Atlantis myth, right? Um, the way that he's been thinking about Numenor and everything 
obviously it's been a really huge deal. Um, but he then adds these two other things in the content, you know, in, in this, in, in the section of the reading I want to cover tonight from the beginning of the Imram, from the beginning of the, 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 the poem, uh, about the voyage and subsequent death, uh, of St. Brendan, uh, up through King Sheev, right? In his discussion of King Sheev. So we have those two other sort of mythic elements, right? The St. Brendan, the, the navigator mythic element and the King Sheev mythic element. Uh, and I want to look at how he's kind of bringing all those things together with that central theme that he's been working on, which is the Atlantis theme, and not just the Atlantis theme by itself, but sort of the echoes of that Atlantis theme throughout, you know, sort of, you know, Northwestern Germanic history, right, um, as he's been uh, been sort of tracing that. So um, let's uh, let's start with that. Because we almost got through all my slides last time, but not quite. Um, we had just gotten to the part where the big storm came through, right? Where the Atlantis myth exploded into, like, across the UK, right? Um, and uh, into this massive primary world storm, which was the great storm, right? Which was this, you know, the biggest storm on record. Um, which, you know, you may remember that Raymer had said that sometimes these mythic... You remember they were talking about the power of myth and legend and things like that? And Raymer had made that kind of cryptic comment about how um, about how it, that is to say, uh, myths, right, can sometimes explode even into the primary world. And that was a little unclear at the time exactly what that meant, right? Um, and especially what he meant by explode exactly right um and then of course when it comes to it we have it, it it's almost literally an explosion right i mean remember even there was like the meteorological report about how the storm puzzled weathermen not only because they didn't see it it seemed to come out of nowhere right but the 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 track of the storm was really strange it was like a series of explosions across the British Isles. Um, as if, which suggests, of course, that that myth was breaking in at several different points, geographical points across the British Isles. Not just, so this was not a rolling storm front which swept across the island. This was um, a series of meteorological explosions, improbable, indeed, impossible as far as conventional explanation apparently went. Um, so it turns out apparently that when Raymer says that these myths can explode into the primary world, he meant it almost literally, right? Um, yeah. So, um, let's, um, oh wait, but then after that, okay. So I was saying, after the storm, you remember Raymer found that piece of paper which Loudham left behind. Loudham and Jeremy went off in the middle of the storm. Like everyone thought they were going to die or like drown out there in the storm. So they walked off in the middle of the storm. And not only did they walk off in the middle of the storm, they walked off like in their Numenorean personae, right? They were like not living in our current time and place, right? They were in the midst of coming into contact with the Numenorean situation, and it was in that context that they wandered off and then they got a letter from them saying that they're going to not be back for several months. And now, uh, so tonight 
um, we're going to be looking at the um, we're going to be looking at the way in which uh, like what do they do right and what exactly is happening with them and how can we begin to understand this. But Raymer found this piece of paper. So Loudham had brought with him to that last meeting where the storm broke out. Um, he had brought with him this sheet of paper, which was from his father's diary, and it was covered with a strange script that he couldn't understand. Right. Um, so he uh, was, you know, brought it in as like a piece of evidence, right? And Raymer found it after the storm and put it in his desk. So this is where, at you know, at the next uh, you know meeting where they are not, that is, Loudham and Jeremy are still not back. We get this account of Guildford's meeting with Raymer, and Raymer explaining that he figured it out, right? He solved the key of the script and, and found that ironically, um, the reason that, um, uh, the, the reason that Loudham had not been able to translate that, um, page himself is that he assumed that the language was Adonaiic, right? He assumed it was, it was the Numenorean language because it appeared to be in Numenorean script. Right. I mean, it was in some script that he was, uh, you know, that he was assuming was 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 Numenorean script, and so he assumed that it was in the Numenorean language. But Raymer says actually no, it's not, and he's going to be he's going to be like amused or frustrated when he finds out it was actually in Anglo-Saxon, only transliterated into the Anglo-Saxon or into the you know Numenorean script. Um, so he so Raymer realized a thing, a simple thing that Loudum had missed and managed to translate the page, right? Um, well, with the help of a resident Anglo-Saxon scholar there in Oxford. So here's what that text actually says. The script that was written apparently by Loudham's father in Numenorean script, uh, but in the Anglo-Saxon language. Now we sit in the land of exile and dwell cut off from the bliss and the blessedness that once was and shall never come again. The death shade lies heavy on us. Longing is on us. In former days, west lay a straight way. Now are all ways crooked. Far now is the land of gift. Far now is the, maybe, prostrate land that is cast down. Far now is the land of mirth that is fallen. Of course, the prostrate land um, is... Uh, uh, you know, the local Anglo-Saxon scholars attempt uh, to translate this word, which clearly means the downfalling, right? Um, we've seen this language being used of Numenor before. So now, think through this with me here. Um, what is, uh, what are the implications of this sheet? What are we seeing here in this strange script, which is think Tenwar, actually. But anyway, in this strange script that the members of the Notion Club don't know, but it's Anglo-Saxon. What is the importance of that? Based on the other things that we've seen, um, what are the uh, um, what are the other things? What's the significance of it? Any thoughts about that? What are we seeing here? Remember the way that things were unfolding to Loudon, right? Loudon 
was getting words, ghost, those the, like ghost words, right? That were coming. He was just getting this, these words that were coming through to him. He was a hearer, not a seer, right? So he was getting these words in the three different language, the Avalonian language, uh, the, uh, uh, the Numenorian language, and some other hodgepodge, and a bunch of Anglo-Saxon, right? And some of the Anglo-Saxon that he was getting was really important, such as the correct uh, the corrected passage from this from the seafarer, right? Um, uh, so, and you'll remember that he kept coming across this one snippet, right, about how the straight path has been lost, right? All roads are now bent, right? Um, the idea of there being something in the West, but things are changed, and this the path has been lost, and now all roads are crooked. Right. And remember that we got that in several different languages. In Germanic tongues, in really antique Anglo-Saxon, in more modern Anglo-Saxon. Um, so what do we put together from that? What do we see? What's the conclusion that we can draw from that? What Laudum is hearing is that myth surviving over time. Right. Uh, as the generations, but as the the passage of time, which is being marked by the philological change in the languages, right? Um, as that, as this time is passing by, we see the continuance of this one central idea, this one central myth, right? This idea of that lost land in the West, that the path there has been lost and that all roads are now crooked, right? With a decreasing sense of what on earth that means, exactly, right? It be becomes just a sort of snippet, right? Well, we got, Laudum got, that is, a much more direct access to the origin of that mythic element, right? Of that mythic snippet that he was hearing kind of echoes of, echoes down the centuries uh, within the Germanic tradition. But he, he, he witnessed firsthand, right? The root of that, really, um, when he and Jeremy were at the windowsill, right, as the storm was coming in, and they were speaking as if they were on the at the railing of a ship, right? Remember, we're told the narrator, the narrator who's uh, Nicholas Guildford, tells us that um, they gave the very clear impression, right? Something told them they could they, they could they could practically see people watching could practically see that these two guys, Jeremy and Laudamer, you know, Alfwina and Treowine. Or, no, they had Numenorean names then, didn't they? Um, but anyway, they were uh, on, the, on the railing of a ship, right? And they were looking out to the west at the destruction of Numenor, and they were seeing the black wind coming and pushing them away and the waves bearing them off. And remember, I was talking last week about how powerful I find that scene. I think that scene as the storm is breaking in the Notion Club papers. That's the moment which, for me, more than anything else I've, Tolkien has written, really can, brought home to me that heart of, the, of this Numenorean myth, that myth that is the thing that is being recalled and retained, that sense of lost, and not just loss, right? You know, they've not just misplaced Numenor, right? They've been banished. It was destroyed, and they've been banished. And as I said last time, I feel that I've always misunderstood that, or at least I, I kind of maybe have always laid the emphasis on only one part of it. I think it's perfectly valid, but it's not the only element 
of the story, right? The element that I've always laid the emphasis on is how the survivors of Numenor, how Elendil and his family uh, were preserved from the downfall, right? How they were spared. And I've always looked at them as a kind of like a Numenorian, you know, uh, Noah's Ark parallel in, in a sense, right? Uh, you know, you've got the wrath of God, which descends upon uh, Numenor, or rather makes Numenor descend rather than descending upon it. And, um, and, but they are spared, right? And they are spared in the ship and they are borne away. Um, they are borne away by the great waves. And, but even the being borne away by the great waves, I always took as itself an element of mercy, right? Again, they're being carried to safety and borne up on the wings of storm to Middle Earth, which always, again, struck me as a kind of a good thing, right? You know, like a, 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 the special grace of the family of Elendil being born on the, on the wings of storm. That is not the emphasis in this text, right? That is not the story that Laudam and Jeremy undergo uh, and, you know, and to perceive happening around them. They feel the wrath of God directed against them. They are being banished and they are aware of the fact, not just that they, so they're not only lamenting, right? Like, oh, it's nice for us to be alive, but we're really sad that everybody else is dead and that, and that our home is gone. It's not only that. Uh, they feel that they have been cut off from the West and that's what lingers, Right, that's what we see lingering, or rather, that's what Laudum hears lingering through generation after generation of Germanic descendants of the people who came into contact with those Numenorians who did survive, with the descendants of the, um, you know, Laudum Jeremy analogs, right, from Numenor. Um, so that uh, that's been the key. So so this text, therefore right, is a full version, right? So one simple way to look at this Anglo-Saxon text, right, is um, this is a, like, the longer version of which that one sentence snippet that kept coming through is only a fragment, right? This is like the longer thing of which, uh, of which that, um, uh, that thing, that, 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 that shorter, later thing is a fragment, right? Um, but it's, it's more than just that, right? The fact that this is in Anglo-Saxon, but written in Numenorean script suggests that there is some way in which this is actually closer to the origins. As if, like, this was written by, that this, this text, this page that was written down by Laudum's father, who presumably received this stuff in a similar way to how Laudum was receiving things, he also got pictures and sounds, ghosts, words, right, and things like that. However, it, um, uh, however it, uh, um, can't, you know, however he would describe it. Remember, that's what happened to Loudon when he came in with those fragments, the A, B, A, B, B, A fragments. Remember, we were looking at those last time. Um, he, like, saw the text and wrote down what he remembered of it, right? And presumably, it was a similar thing that happened to Loudon's dad in this page of script that Loudon couldn't figure out, right? Therefore, my understanding of that would be that this text is a transcription of a text which at least has its origin in something written by the Numenorians in Europe, right? After they had been banished, after they have arrived here at this, our Middle Earth, um, 
and are now like living among, you know, these Germanic cultures uh, who live by the sea up here in, you know, the northwestern part of Middle Earth. Um, and they, so they've learned the language, right? So this is written by a Numenorean who has learned Anglo-Saxon, but is writing Anglo-Saxon in uh, his Numenorean script as well, right? Um, so that makes this a really, really important text, which again, Ladum didn't really understand. And notice, we, uh, you know, I said it was, it's, it's like the fuller part of which the later stuff is only a fragment or a memory. Now we sit in the land of exile and dwell cut off from the bliss and the blessedness that once was and shall never come again. The death shade lies heavy on us. Longing is on us. In former days, west lay a straight way. Now are all ways crooked. That's the fragment that's going to be re retained, right? Far now is the land of gift. Far now is the prostrate land that is cast down. Far now is the land of mirth that is fallen. Notice like the, the part that comes at the beginning and the end. There seems to be one really important strain through that. And it relates to something that a couple of you are saying. Karita, I agree. Land of Mirth is a very striking name. And Tarlonio on the Twitch chat was also just saying that Numenor, Numenor never struck me as a land of mirth. Now, I agree, Tarlonio. Certainly not since Sauron has arrived uh, has it really been a land of mirth. But anyway, I agree. This is a That's a very striking uh a very striking description, right? And again, this is yet another thing. Um, well, not another thing, maybe just another way of saying the same thing um, that I've always missed about the Numenor legend, um, about the, the, the myth of Numenor as Tolkien was envisioning it here, uh, especially as he was envis envisaging the Numenorean exiles. I had always understood the laments for Numenor, like the things that are said at the very end of the Akalabeth, right, where, the, you know, where Numenor is given that name. Um, about which to me, I always read that as like, we miss our home, right? Our home was awesome. Our home is gone. We can never go home again. So that's sad. Like, I'm like, okay, I'm down with that kind of longing, right? But this is much more than that. I mean, look at the exile. It starts with exile. This, where they are is a land of exile. They are cut off from the bliss and the blessedness that once was and shall never come again. It's, this is not home, right? They're not, they're not, it's not their, they're not speaking of like, you know, of, of a patria, of a fatherland, right? That's not this kind, that's not the language that they're using here. The bliss and the blessedness that once was and shall never come again. Far now is the land of mirth that is foam. Far now is the land of gift. Um, what it um, what it sounds like, um, and yeah, Brian, Brian, there. Anyway, there have certainly been concepts of the land of gift. Uh, that that idea, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, Lauda mentioned that early on. That 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 word. Um, that word for Numenor, which translates land of gift, uh, was one of the words that came through to Laudam earlier on. So we, we've, we've already heard about that. But again, you put these things together. What is the pattern? The land of mirth, the land of gift, cut off from the bliss and blessedness that once was and shall never come again. And how, what is their current life like? The death shade 
lies heavy on us. Longing is on us. How they, what they make this sound like, yes, Tomas, exactly what I was thinking. Um, it sounds like they've been kicked out of Eden, right? This sounds like a fall, not an exile, just merely an exile, right? Not a longing for home, right? Not a, the kind of longing that, you know, like a hobbit would have if he was, you know, couldn't ever go back to the Shire. That's not what we're talking about, right? Um, what we are talking about is uh, a fall, something like a fall. They feel it to be a fall anyway, right? This is more than just geographic exile, certainly, and it is much more than merely a sentimental attachment to this land, to the, the their, again, the land of their birth, the land of their home, right? Um, the world has changed. They are cut off from the bliss and blessedness that once was and shall never come again. The death shade lies heavy on us. Adam and Eve could have said that. Like, those words, unaltered, right, could have been uttered by Adam and Eve, right, after they've been kicked out of Eden. It's like, that is exactly applicable. And then, of course, that itself puts Land of Gift in a different context there, right? Yeah, land of gift in the sense in which Eden was a gift. Paradise was a gift, right? Um, and that it was a kind of paradise and, and paradise. and that is why I think we have land of mirth. And I agree, land of mirth, counterintuitive, right? I mean, I don't think most of us would, would you know, if you say like, you know, give me something that, you know, you associate with Numenor, mirth would probably have been pretty far down on the list, right? Yeah, sure, they were blessed, they were happy, they were fortunate, they were, um, you know, but, but like, having fun, right? Uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, the, like, joy? Not necessarily what we might first associate with Numenor, but, yes, in this context, they definitely are. This the mirth that was, the joy that was, shall never come again. Um, the world has changed. They have been banished. They are in a land of exile in more than one sense. Um, so, um, and yeah, Stephen, I agree. It is a second example, uh, like the tra -la, la 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 elves, right? Where people tend to think of... Uh, of, you know, like elves as being super serious, and that's why they have such a hard time with the tra la 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 section. And uh, again, I, I think that's uh, um, kind of their problem, not the elves' problem, really. Uh, but anyhow, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, now, I mean, the fall of Numenor, it's not like this concept, the concept of the... Uh, um, the concept of the parallelism between the fall of Numenor and the, you know, the fall of Adam and Eve, it's not like that never occurred to me, right? I mean, I've often talked about it as when there are several, like, type of, you know, moments in the Silmarillion where that idea of the fall is sort of typologically recapitulated, right? I mean, we certainly get it with the Noldor uh, in... Uh, uh, you know, and with Melkor playing the serpent role, right? 
uh, you know, we get certainly something that is much like a fall there. Um, uh, and, and, you know, the, this other moment, um, you know, the, the corruption of Numenor with Sauron this time playing the role of the serpent um, always struck me as being typologically significant in that way. The element that I'd never gotten is that the faithful are like Adam and Eve banished from the garden. Right. That's the part that never get. I, I always thought of our Pharazon as like Adam and Eve. Right. Um, and the Numenorians, the king's men, you know, who went with him to invade uh, to, in, you know, to invade the blessed realm. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. They were uh, they were uh, getting kicked out of Eden uh, with extreme prejudice. Right. I got that. Um, but this is um, uh, this is a new a thing that was always lost on me before. Um, and remember, this is what echoes down, right? This is what echoes, and, and not only just sort of vertically uh, down in history in this like one little area, but like across geography, right? In different cultures, um, from different languages uh, and different sort of, um, you know, linguistic perspectives, uh, we're getting this same myth being repeated and re-echoed. In former days, west lay a straight way, now are all ways crooked. Um, it's less personal, right? It doesn't have the clarity of um, what exactly has been lost, right? The memory of the bliss and the blessedness is kind of gone, right? What does it even mean to say, in former days, west lay a straight way? Straight to what, right? That doesn't, the memory of that doesn't seem to be retained, uh, in the fragment of the myth that survives. Um, though it seems fairly clear that now are always crooked, that that's bad, right? So presumably, whatever was off to the west along the straight way was good, right? But again, it's it's all kind of vague and impersonal uh, by the time we get down to like the Gothic and Anglo-Saxon echoes uh, of that statement. But it is much more personal. Again, another reason why this begins to feel like the original version, like the first generation Numenorians writing this after they've landed. Um, okay, uh, so old Rashbold, of course. Rashbold is the name of the Anglo-Saxon expert, and of course, as Christopher says, uh, this is a, uh, this is a, uh, an inside joke. Rashbold, of course, is the literal translation of Tolkien's name um, uh, from German. Rashbold or Foolhardy. Um, so, uh, old Rashbold, the Anglo-Saxon scholar is of course Tolkien himself. Um, uh, and of course he makes him this like old duffer, right? Who, uh, uh, is totally clueless about everything else, uh, and only knows his Anglo-Saxon. Of course, when old Rashbold said the style has the air of a translation, he simply meant that the fabricator had not been quite successful in making the stuff sound like natural Anglo-Saxon. So Rashbold doesn't think it's very good Anglo-Saxon, right? Like somebody was faking it. This is so basically Rashbold reads this and he says it has the air of a translation, which is his polite way of saying this is done by a modern person who's doing something cute with his script. Right. They've made this. Uh, this is not an original Anglo-Saxon uh, uh, utterance. Right. They're not. It's not quite right. Um so, and he is thinking that the fabricator had not been quite successful in making this stuff sound like natural Anglo-Saxon. I can't judge that, Raymer says. But I dare say he is right. 
though his implied explanation may be wrong. This probably is a translation out of some other language into Anglo-Saxon, but not, I think, by the man who penned the page, that is, Laudum's father. He was in a hurry, or like Airy trying to catch the evanescent, and if he had had any time for translation, he would have done it into modern English. I can't see any point in the Anglo-Saxon unless what he saw was already in it. I say saw, for this stuff looks to me like the work of a man copying out all he had time to see, or all he found still intact and legible in some book. Um, again, like Loudham received that picture of the script that he translated, uh, um, and that we talked about last time. So again, this would seem to confirm what we were talking about, right? The reason that the Anglo-Saxon in this text, um, uh, the reason that the Anglo-Saxon in this in this text doesn't sound like true Anglo-Saxon is because it's being written by a Numenorian, who is in fact translating from Adonaic into uh, Anglo-Saxon, right? So it's not by a modern person, but uh, by an ancient person translating. Um, yes, Devorah, it is really funny that that uh, old Rashbold thought this was really boring, right? He was like, yeah, whatever. I don't have time for this nonsense anymore. Devorah, I loved that comment. You know, Rashbold, who, you know, whose name is Tolkien, being like, I don't have time for this kind of thing, right? I have a job to do. I, I don't have to, my, my time is not infinite, right? I can't, that was uh, uh, hilarious. Um, yeah. Um, so, Carrie, the implication, therefore is that this is written by a Numenorean who has settled down here and learned the language, right? So I say first generation, but that doesn't mean first instant, right? Um, so this is someone who presumably still remembers Numenor uh, himself. But, and I say he because all of our recurring characters uh, are all masculine here. Um, uh, he, he seems to remember Numenor, but he doesn't... Um, uh, he. Uh, uh, He's, he's clearly learned, I think, Anglo-Saxon, that hint, I, I think anyway, it's clearly that direction rather than the other. That is to say, rather than him just uttering an Adunayak and an Anglo-Saxon scribe, having learned his language and translating it to Anglo-Saxon, that seems to me a great deal less likely for several reasons. But, um, but of course, the thing which would seem to me absolutely to seal that is that it's written in Numenorean script, right? So even though he has translated the language, he hasn't written it out like an Anglo-Saxon would. He's written it out like a Numenorean would. Um, but it's the New, it's the Numenorean script which, to Raymer, and which makes perfect sense, makes it seem so very unlikely that this could possibly have been invented by um, uh, by old Professor Loudon, right, uh, Ares' father. Um, it's almost certainly something that he discovered, right? Um, or that he kind of came into contact with. Um, but um, anyway, um, okay. So thinking about this, thinking about how then the Numenorean myth comes into contact with the Germanic world and what we've learned here about how that happened. So the Numenoreans came, they settled down in this Germanic world, um, they learned the language, and although... They are dead and gone, and, you know, they're no longer, you know, any 
obvious evidence of direct descendants of the, you know, Numenorians who came and dwelt among them. Nevertheless, the presence of that repeated mythic phrase about the crooked roads um, suggests that culturally a memory is retained of this myth, right, of this story of Numenor that is, that is fallen and lost. Okay, great. At this point, then, Tolkien brings in to the Notion Club papers these two other myths, and we'll do them one at a time, of course, and we begin with the poem, with the Imram, uh, and this is Frankly, right? This is Philip Frankly, uh, the non, the, uh, the, the one with the uh, horror Borealis who hates all northern things um, and is getting sick and tired of the Anglo-Saxon and who makes fun of the philologists. Um, he has written a poem that he wants to read out. So it's totally unrelated to anything else, right? This is just like the contribution of a completely separate Notion Club member uh, who is reading a poem which has nothing to do with the rest of this, except it kind of does seem to have something to do with the rest of this. And they begin asking him, like, how did this come through to him, uh, in fact? Um, there, are set, <clears throat> there are the three central images, so that you'll remember the plot of the poem, right, is that St. Brendan the Navigator uh, has gone off from his Irish monastery and has sailed off into the West, and he returns having had marvelous uh, uh, naval adventures, kind of like, though presumably more Pacific than those of Arendel that never got written. Uh, anyway, so he returns back and he says, primarily there are three things, three things that he saw. There was a mountain, a tree, uh, a mountain, a tree, and a star. Those are the three things that he saw, right? Um, and, you know, those of us familiar with the Silmarillion and with the Lord of the Rings say mountain, tree, and star, and we have all kinds of associations that pop up, right? What did St. Brendan see when he went into the West? Um, the very idea that St. Brendan went off into the West had this remarkable sort of myth, you know, a, 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 um, spiritual experience, right? Encountered these amazing things and returned we are already prepared based on the mythic foundation that has been laid uh, to understand that St. Brendan basically found the straight path and went into the West, right? So that's what happened. Also, keep in mind the significance or at least the irony, but I think it's not merely irony. Um, the irony of, of this St. Brendan traveling on the... Um, uh, you know, into the West on the straight road in a story which began talking about the mechanism of space travel, right? Um, so, like, I went off in a boat and found myself on the straight road and end up in what could practically, at this point, be a different planet now, right? Um, anyway, so that's uh, by itself a little bit interesting. But anyway, okay, so here's the mountain. Here's St. Brendan's encounter with the mountain. Upreared from sea to cloud, then sheer a shoreless mountain stood. Its sides were black from the sullen tide to the red lining of its hood. No cloak of cloud, no lowering smoke, no looming storm of thunder. In the world of men saw I ever unfurled like the pall that we passed under. 
we turned away, we left astern the rumbling and the gloom. Then the smoking cloud asunder broke, and we saw that tower of doom. On its ashen head was a crown of red, where fires flamed and fell. Tall as a column in high heaven's hall, its feet were deep as hell. Grounded in chasms, the water drowned and buried long ago. It stands, I ween, in forgotten lands, where the, king of, where the kings of kings lie low. What did he see? I don't mean to treat this as if it's just a riddle, you know, like, there's the riddle. What's the answer, right? I don't mean that, but what is this? If you just told me, Sam Brendan sails off into the West, presumably finds the straight road, and comes upon a super high, solitary mountain. If that's the only piece of information you get, what do you expect? What would you expect? That's the only piece of information that you're given. Found the straight path into the west, and boom. Big mountain. You would, I mean, again, within the Tolkien mythos, right? Knowing that it's the straight road, or I won't say knowing, presuming that it's the straight road, straight road that Brendan found. Yeah, it sounds like you would think it would be Tiniquitil, right? The holy mountain. On the shores, right, or near the shores, anyway, uh, of Valinor, right? That's the mountain I would expect. But yeah, James, way back, I agree. This doesn't sound like Tiniquitil. That's my expectation, right? St. Brandon, you know, all this straight road, crooked roads talk and stuff, and then we're getting this poem, and I'm starting to read the poem, and he says a mountain, and I'm like, okay. A mountain and a tree. I'm like, okay, I think I'm, maybe I know what the tree is, right? And a star. Okay, I'm I'm there, right? Star at least, I, I feel real confident in. Tree, I'm feeling pretty good about it. Like it's probably going to be the white tree of like Elvenholm, right? So just like you know, remember they gave a scion of that tree to the Numenorians, and that's of course what then the the seedling of that tree gets taken. You know, the, it, Silver takes the fruit, right? So we've got a white tree, right, in Elvenholm. So, right, that's going to be cool, right? So we got, so we got that tree. We've got the star, obviously. We've got Arendelle's star, no problem, um, especially since Arendelle's name's all over the place. And, of course, Tiniquitil. So, sight of Valinor, sight of Elvenholm, and, uh, you know, the Flamifer of the West that's flying above, and that is kind of not exactly the bridge, but kind of going between the West and the East, right? That, like, that you can see him from our world, but, of course, he's uh, he can't return to our world, so... You know, that this idea of like that which connects the two of them. So again, just from St. Brendan saying, mountain, tree, star, I've got it, right? I've got the whole story nailed. I don't need to read the rest of the poem, right? I'm good, except it's a good thing we read the rest of the poem because this is not what we're seeing. Now, Stephen, you are also right. It seems like he could be describing the Lord of the Rings, potentially, or at least parts of it. Yeah, um, theoretically possible, of course, because he's been writing it um, when he's getting to this part. But anyway, so back to what we see again. A shoreless mountain stood. Upreared from sea to cloud, then sheer, a shoreless mountain stood. Already this doesn't sound like Tiniquita, right? Because if there is one thing that we know we should expect to find at Valinor, it's a shore. 
right? Um, fairy famously has shores, as celebrated in the poem, The Shores of Fairy, right, earlier on. And of course, like we need to have beaches with pearls strewn on them and all that kind of thing, right? So we totally, even if we're going to have a mountain, right, even if it's Tinicwatil we're looking at, it's totally going to be behind a beach, at least, right? If not a fair bit more inland than that. So the fact that it's, it, this is a mountain that is uprearing straight from the sea, right? So you've got sides of mountain, water breaking against the sides of the mountain. So we're already clearly, geographically speaking, or like topographically speaking, not talking about Tinicwatil. Its sides were black from the sullen tide to the red lining of its hood? Uh, that's, that, it's red and black. Those are not the colors of Tiniquitil, right? It's, it's black with a red lining at the top? Oh, wait, and it's surrounded by clouds. No cloak of cloud, no lowering smoke, no looming storm of thunder in the world of men saw I ever unfurled like the pall that we passed under. Okay, super, super dark pall of lowering smoke. Does sound a bit on the volcanic side, right? Definitely. But, I, you know, I mean, is this Mount Doom? I mean, is this Ordruin? No, there's no ocean there, right? Um, is this... But remember... A volcano isn't necessarily uh, what we're seeing here, right? I mean, it's a logical thought, given the, you know, the, the cloud slash smoke slash storm of thunder uh, slash pall, right? Those are the things that are used to describe it. Um, sure, you know, volcano definitely could accomplish that. But again, that's not necessarily, I think, what is being described. Or let me say this a different way. Remember where we are, narratively, right? Remember what just happened two pages ago in the Notion Club papers, right? We had this massive storm, right? This storm, which, like, still, like, you know, on the day that, you know, Philip Frankly reads this poem to the Notion Club, you know, you've still got British meteorologists saying things like, no, storm, no looming storm of thunder in the world of men saw I ever unfurled like the one that passed through a couple weeks back, right? You know, so we already have um, some pretty clear associations with a very massive, enormously impressive, uh, and enormously oppressive as well, Black Storm, right? Um, so, given what we know, right? Again, my first guess, even though we've not been talking about Tinicuitl at any time, that would have been my first guess, right, of what you would find if you sailed the straight road to the west. Instead, what it's beginning to sound like is that St. Brendan found Numenor in some sense. Did he travel in time as well as space? Not really sure. Could happen, uh, based on what we've seen here in the Notion Club papers. But let's look at this a little bit more. On its ashen head was a crown of red where flame, where fires flamed and fell. Is that a volcano? It's tricky. It sounds like a volcano, but I don't think that's a volcano. In fact, I think that's the opposite of a volcano, right? He's not saying that 
the crown of red on its ashen head, uh, where fires flamed and fell. Doesn't mean that he's not saying that fires, flames are falling from the head of the mountain. I think. Um, I think he's saying that fire fell upon the head of the mountain. That's why its head is ashen, because its head has been burned. Which, Stephen, does make it sound a little altar-like, right? Uh, in fact, Stephen, I would go a step further and say it sounds a little bit uh, Mount Carmel-ish, actually. Uh, at least a little reminiscent uh, of that sort of altar, right? Um, Tall as a column in high heaven's hall, its feet were deep as hell. So the feet of this mountain go all the way down into hell-ish, you know. Grounded in chasms, the water drowned and buried long ago. It stands, I ween, that is, the feet of that mountain stand in forgotten lands where the kings of kings lie low. Yeah, Nancy, I think you're clearly right about the island that he's seeing. What he's seeing is the top of the mental tarma, the pillar of heaven, which, remember, has been a subject of comment, right? Not of much explanation, mind. We've not learned, actually, much about the mental tarma, but it's been referred to a couple times. Um, so we should kind of have that in our heads. Is St. Brendan traveling back in time? No, not traveling back in time. He is seeing post-downfallen Numenor. Right? What he is seeing sticking up out of the water is the top of the pillar of heaven, the top of mental tarma, that column in high heaven's hall, right? but its feet are as deep as hell. At the foot of this mountain is grounded in chasms, the water drowned and buried long ago. It stands, I ween, in forgotten lands where the kings of kings lie low. Remember those obscure Anglo-Saxon words which meant things like kings of kings, right? Um, you know, the lordly men. Uh, and stuff, it's the land of the Numenorians, right? That has been sunk uh, as deep as hell, right? But still the head, the crowned but ashen head of the Menel Tarma stands above the water. So apparently that is one of the things that you find if you go out on the straight road. Uh, a glimpse, and not a happy glimpse, of a calabeth of the downfallen, right, of Atalanta. Um, uh, okay, so um, not um, not what I was expecting to see. Not what I was expecting St. Brendan to encounter, though more topical, right, and, you know, more closely connected to what uh, we've been looking at, what we've been talking about. Um yeah, um, Bruce, I agree. That line does stand out. The sound of that line. The uh, uh, On its ashen head was a crown of red where fires flamed and fell. Um, that's a pretty remarkable pair of lines, right? Um, uh, Bruce is pointing out that although there is there are other um, internal rhymes and other lines, like, for instance, uh, then the smoking cloud asunder broke, Right, so smoking and broke. We've got we got that sound repeated uh, in that line, but it doesn't 
it doesn't come on the beats, right? It's not anything like as even as on its ashen head was a crown of red where fires flamed and fell. And of course, we also get the alliteration on that second line, which we also get in other places like High Heaven's Hall, for instance. Um, but uh, but yeah, that 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 does really make that line jump out because we never really uh, uh, we, we we don't get the internal rhyme that smoothly anywhere else. And indeed, I would Bruce also just kind of exp expand that to say those first lines are weird. Um, yeah, oh, Bruce, that's really cool. Bruce is pointing out that the second to last line in this passage would work perfectly if it were ordered differently, right? If he said, I ween it stands in forgotten lands where the kings of kings lie low, it would fit perfectly. But he's inverted the order, Bruce, as you I think you're implying, almost as if to avoid that. Instead of saying, I ween it stands in forgotten lands, he says, it stands, I ween, in forgotten lands. So you still do get the, the sound connection between stands and lands, but it doesn't, it doesn't land on the half lines like you get with On Its Ashen Head Was a Crown of Red. It's a wonderful observation, Bruce. Um, but again, the, the observation I would add on top of that, um, could you hear how strange and irregular? I think it's irregular. Not 100% sure. I'd need to spend a little more time with this poem than I got a chance to do uh, to be sure about this. But the tendency is for the second line to be fairly regularly iambic. A shoreless mountain stood to the red lining of its hood, a little more awkward. No looming storm of thunder like the pall that we passed under, the rumbling and the gloom. And we saw that Tower of Doom, right? I'm reading just the the, the short lines, the three-beat lines. Um, and those are much more regular. But those first lines, the four-beat lines, are strange. Upreared from sea to cloud, then sheer. Its sides were black from the sullen tide. No cloak of cloud, no lowering smoke. In the world of men saw I ever unfurled. We turned away and we left astern. Then the smoking cloud asunder broke. None of those lines are regular iambic lines. Dun-dun, 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 dun-dun. We get that in, in, more often in the short lines. A shoreless mountain stood. That's a perfect iambic line. Perfect iambic trimeter line. A shoreless mountain stood. We almost never get a perfect uh, iambic uh, uh, tetrameter line in the longer lines. They all have that awkward beat extra syllables um the stresses are kind of scattered a little bit strangely um i was trying to see if there's um uh, a clearer pattern i think there might be a pattern if it might, might be not really an iambic pattern uh you know the sort of falling into an iambic pattern in the second part but anyway i, I wasn't like i said i didn't fully have time to to look at it um but um yeah, we do, Devorah, get um, repeated sounds. Again, like Bruce was pointing out, we get a lot of that sort of internal rhyme, but again, not on the beats. Upreared, sheer, uh, cloak smoke, as we talked about, world unfurled, sides tied. Um, yeah, we get a lot of pairings like that in those um, it turned astern, right? I mean, almost every one of them, right? Upreared, sheer, uh, sides tied, Cloak, smoke, world unfurled, 
turned astern, smoking broke, uh, head red, of course, we saw, as we said. Um, tall hall, uh, grounded drowned, and stands lands. Yeah, every single one of them we get uh, some kind of um, uh, internal rhyme in that first line. But again, they're they tend to be more at the beginning and the end of the line. So again, I'm not convinced that there's no pattern there. It's just not, it's not smooth. It doesn't fit with the ictus of the poem with that, with the iambic feel that certainly those short lines inspire, right? Um, so it's, it's, it's structurally in this way, it's a really interesting, well, I shouldn't say structurally. Structure would be thinking about the stanza and everything, but as far as like the rhythm, uh, and uh, the rhythm and rhyme, it's, an, it's, a, it's a sort of a weird poem. Well, let's go on and we'll, we'll continue to trace that. Let's look at the, so here's the tree. So we got, first we got Mount, Mount Doom, Pillar of Doom, and then we get the white tree. We deemed then, maybe, as in a dream, that time had passed away and our journey ended for no return we hoped but there to stay. In the silence of that hollow isle and the stillness then we sang, Softly us seemed, but the sound aloft like a pealing organ rang. Then trembled the tree from crown to stem, from the limbs, the leaves, and air, as white birds fled in wheeling flight and left the branches bare. From the sky came dropping down on high a music not of bird, not voice of man nor angel's voice, but maybe there is a third fair kindred in the world yet lingers beyond the foundered land. Yet steep are the seas and the waters deep beyond the white tree strand. Okay. Um, well, the overall theme here, um, let me ask this. Uh, so whom are they encountering? Whom is St. Brendan encountering? Uh, I don't mean the tree specifically. Whom? Who, who, in general terms, I don't need a first name, right? What peoples is he encountering here? Yes, elves. Exactly. I know, I'm sure most of you are thinking, well, I think it might be elves, but uh, I'm not 100% sure. Yes, um, elves, definitely elves. Um, and this is, this is in the voice of St. Brendan, remember? And so he is speaking um, just as medieval people, when they did speak of elves, generally spoke of them, right? Um, this idea that there was a third category, third meaning you've got men and you've got angels, which of course category also includes demons. That's a, a moral distinction, not a, uh, not a difference in being, right? Demons and angels are similar. Uh, they're of the same order of being. They just, you know, play for different sides. Um, so you've got men and you've got angels, and then there's this third thing. Um, the elves, they didn't know what to do with elves, right? There are all these stories of creatures who are like men. They're not angels. They're not spiritual beings. They have bodies, right? So they're not just spiritual beings. Um, angels are all spirit. They don't have bodies. Elves have bodies. But they're not like men because they're immortal, right? So they are... Uh, and it, it's kind of interesting because... Um, on uh, um, on you know the great chain of being, the medieval great chain of being, humans are essentially like um, 
uh, amphibious, right? You know, you've got like the spiritual world. So you've got God and you've got the angels and, you know, and they're all in the spiritual realm. And then you've got the things in the physical realm below that, right? Beasts, vegetables, uh, you know, beasts, plants, minerals, right? Uh, those are all things that are in the physical world. And humans are the only ones who straddle the line, right? That's the thing that is unique about the place of humans in creation, according to the medieval great chain of being, is that, again, the human alone is amphibious. It is, a, it, it is like the beasts. It has a body, which is, has therefore things in common, not only with beasts, but also with plants and, and with minerals, right? We have uh, a lot in common with rocks. Solidity, for instance, right? The fact that we tend more or less to retain our shape. That is uh, a thing we have in common. Uh, with uh, uh, with stones. But, of course, we also have things in common with the angels as well. We have souls. We have spirits. We are also spiritual beings. So humans alone are kind of halfway. Well, the elves are like this weird sort of sub-halfway between um, uh, humans and angels, right? Uh, again, they're not like exactly... They're not side-by-side with humans, they, again, they're like this little overlapping category between angels and human, angels and humans overlap. Uh, and then you've got the elves who are immortal like the angels, uh, but physical like the humans. And we have no idea what the state of their souls are exactly um, or where they came from. And yes, in the discarded image, C.S. Lewis calls them longaivi, which just means the long livers, like those people who live a really long time and we don't know who they are. Um, because that element, their immortality, their relative deathlessness, that is the fact that they don't die of old age, um, uh, uh, because the fact that they could potentially be killed is, is part of several myths. Um, but anyway, um, I... That's the, that's the, their distinguishing feature is the fact that they're immortal. So anyway, um, so absolutely, Karita, there are, one of the things that the medievals were extremely good at was explaining how stuff fit together, right? They were excellent at this. Um, and um, this is, it's just some, it's one of the things, this is on my short list of things that I think modern, that it, that it frustrates me when modern people misunderstand. You hear a lot of modern people talk as if the medieval Catholic Church was just like all about propaganda. Like all they did was propaganda, right? So like, you know, oh, hey, Ash, so you believe in these local gods? Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll come in and we'll explain that away in terms of like, uh, you know, saints and everything. I'm not saying that that is not in fact a description of what happened in some in one sense, but I think it's a description that fundamentally misses the point of what was actually happening. Um, that's not how the medievals tended to think. Instead, how they thought was, okay, um, things happen here, right? Like there are stories about, you know, like a look, you know, which the people here have understood to be this local deity. Now they don't have the full picture. Let's explain. Let's, let's show how this fits into the bigger picture, right? Let's incorporate this because they were fine with it, right? They were actually very accommodating to many of, this is why like they, they in many ways, they totally believed uh, 
uh, a lot of the Greco-Roman tradition, like not fully, right? They would be like, oh yeah, many of these myths are lies, right? Um, but again, like they, this is why they believed in the sphere of Mercury and the sphere of Mars and the sphere of Venus, right? Because there was some, there was in fact a reality that was being perceived by the ancients, right? Um, they weren't just making this stuff up. They weren't just absolutely, uh, uh, absolutely lying. So they, the medievals, could explain, like, no, here's, here's the whole system, right? Here's how, so let me tell you about the planetary beings, right? The planetary intelligences whose influence on the world delegated to them by God as part of his, like, delegated mechanism for, like, both creating and sustaining the world and perpetuating uh, his providential plan for the world. Um, th this is how this works, right? And it was a shadow of that. It was a it, it was a, a bit of that that was being perceived by the ancients who talked about these gods, right? Anyway, um, so they, uh, but they had a heck of a time with elves. They really did. It was super uncomfortable, and they really didn't know. So there were several different theories for where where elves came from, and one is that they were they are angelic. Right. Um, they're angelic creatures who kind of um, who are like neutrals. Right. So you've got the, 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 the so you've got the heavenly hosts. Right. And some of them followed Satan and became demons. And some of them remain faithful to God and, and are the angels. And then there's some who are like on the fence and they're like, eh, you know, I don't know. Um, we're, we're going to see how this plays out, right? And those are the elves. That's one theory, right? One way in which they tried uh, to incorporate uh, the, the, the stories of elves into their larger worldview. Another way is that they're the spirits of dead people, right? That these are not, uh, that these are, again, these are not like separate creatures. These are the spirits of the dead. It's like an underworld sort of thing because we know the spirits of the dead survive, Right. And of course, within the medieval Catholic sense, we know there's like whole, you know, there's purgatory and stuff. And there's a, you know, so like they're, they're not all with God in heaven right away, right? There's a process involved here. So maybe these stories of elves are in like, maybe it's like they're the dead souls of the dead and somewhere in this process, we don't really know. Um, anyway, so um, it's, um, uh, yeah. It's all, they, they weren't quite sure what to do with the elves. So this um, talk, St. Brendan makes it pretty clean, pretty plain when he says, um, not voice of man nor angel's voice, but maybe there is a third fair kindred in the world yet lingers beyond the foundered land. Maybe there's something else, right? He seems for some reason certain that this is not an angel's voice. Right? He's not hearing angels. He's hearing something else. So, not an angel, not a human. Maybe there is a third kindred, and the fact that it's a fair kindred, certainly Tolkien's use of the word fair attached to them should make it fairly clear to us um, who he's talking about there. Especially since, of course, this is one of the things we would have expected St. Brendan to see uh, or to encounter if he found this straight road. Now, so what's his encounter with the elves like? What does it have to do with the tree? 
it's a little weird. I shouldn't just ask you to explain this because I don't understand it myself. I'm asking because I don't understand it, and I was hoping you could explain it to me. Um, but I'll have a go. So he does not meet the elves. He doesn't find the Cottage of Lost Play. He doesn't get to hear stories about the creation of the world and bring back a book, right? This is not St. Brendan's experience, right? St. Brendan has this much more limited, this much more strange encounter with the elves. Uh, in fact, uh, if you would like to find the other account by Tolkien, which strikes me as most similar to this one, that is, account of an encounter between mortal and the elves. Um, the one that this reminds me of most, the one which seems to me in spirit closest to this account of St. Brendan, um, is the one that is published, is the poem that is published under the title The Sea Bell in The Adventures of Tom Bombadil. Um, but, um, yeah, good. Brian says it feels a little like the dwarves disturbing the elven feasts in Mirkwood. Yeah, it does. So let's, first thing, what's the first thing you always do when you're reading a poem? Make sure you understand the plot, right? Let's just actually make sure that we go through and understand what is being described before we try to understand the significance of it. Let's make sure we know what it is. Okay. So he's not sure. Notice his uncertainty at the beginning. We deemed then maybe as in a dream. Okay, that's pretty, it's like three pieces of diffidence in one line there, right? That time had passed away, and our journey ended, for no return we hoped, but there to stay. So we were hoping, so when they land on this shore, and remember there are pearls on the sands here, I'm pretty sure, and uh, I skipped that bit, but I think they're there. Um, so they're they're deeming, right, they're, they're, they're choosing, um, hoping that, this is, they've arrived at their destination, right? Um, they would love to stay here. This looks like a great place. In the silence of that hollow isle, in the stillness, then we sang. Okay, so they sang a song, right? So they gather around and they sing a song. The isle is hollow. Hollow is such an interesting word. It is so close to the word hollow, but not quite. Is it a holy island? I don't know if it's a holy island or not. It's a hollow island. I don't know if it's a hallowed island as well. But in any case, when they break the stillness, when they break the silence by singing, which seems inoffensive enough, right? Um, you know, it's, uh, I guess it depends on what they sing. Softly us seemed, that is, they, they, they're not even being raucous, right? They're not even breaking the noise ordinances, or apparently they are. Um, apparently the noise ordinances are super strict here. Um but the sound aloft like a pealing organ rang. So their song, even though they're singing kind of softly, nevertheless, like booms across the land, right? It's almost like their song is amplified. And Tomas, it could well be that they were singing tra la la or some similar uh, kind of mirthful ditty. I wouldn't put it past St. Brendan at all. Um, but the sound of their song is massively, at least it sounds like a pealing organ. Right. Then trembled the tree from crown to stem, from the limbs, the leaves and air as white birds fled in wheeling flight and left the branches bare. So the tree was a white tree in the sense that it was covered with what looked like white leaves. Right. 
But when they sing, the leaves all take off as white birds in wheeling flight. Does this mean that the tree was always bare and it was just so covered in white birds that it, which were very apparently still and quite silent, um, that they just mistook them for leaves uh, until they all took off? Or does this mean that they changed into, like they were leaves, and have transformed into birds? Um, or are they not that either? Is there a third possibility that the leaves, in fact, themselves just fly up because it is a simile, as white birds fled in wheeling flight? Now, if we read that as a simile, it could just be a description. Uh, but anyway... One way or another, they turn out to be birds, or at least to be like birds, and they all fly away, and the tree is left bare. That sounds bad. It, this, so this sounds like a violation has happened, right? They've come to this land, and they're like, hey, this place is awesome. Let's stay here, right? You think we'll be welcome here? Let's sing a song, right? Let's, let's, uh, I think the best we've, thing we could do is sing a hymn, uh, or sing an hymn, uh, as uh, uh the future King Frank of Narnia will say in the magician's nephew. Um, so they're going to, they're going to sing a song and presumably it is a cheerful and uh, thankful song. Uh, that, I don't know if it's the same hymn of Thanksgiving that uh, Frank, the, um, the cabbie sings all about bringing in the sheaves. But, uh, but in any case, he, uh, they're, they're, they're singing, but as soon as they sing, the whiteness of the tree vanishes and the, the leaves all fly away like birds and they're left with this barren tree. That doesn't have a, that's it, not a good look, right? It looks like they are being rejected. It looks like they have transgressed. Um, the image of the, oh, Bruce, you were thinking of uh, Frank the Cabby too. Um, the, um, the image of like the, the beautiful shining white tree, and now it's a bare tree, right? Like, you know, a completely leafless tree that, that suggests that something has been removed, right? That they uh, uh, they don't seem to be completely welcome here. And yes, they're, um, Brian and Stephen are both thinking of uh, Bilbo and the dwarves stepping into the feasting rings of the elves, right? But remember, and that is one of the most standard traditions of elf stories, right? Of, uh, of fairy stories is a mortal blundering into the elf realm, into elf festivities, and it vanishing away when they, it, he arrives, right? Um, so, but then what happens? From the sky came dropping down on high a music not of bird, not voice of man, nor angel's voice, but maybe there is a third fair kindred in the world yet lingers beyond the foundered land. So they sing, the elves sing, and they hear the voice of the elves singing. Okay, wait, so now I'm a little bit more confused. Is this a good thing now? Maybe? Is this a, like they sing their song and the elves sing their song back? But it's coming down from the sky. Those weren't elves on the tree. Couldn't have been elves on the tree. But they, they, the leaves flew up into the sky, and now the song is coming down from the sky, like the direction where the white 
leaves which then flew away like birds are. I know, Tomas, it sounds really uncomfortably Tinkerbellish, doesn't it? Right? I mean, we all have this, uh, well, we've been good students of Tolkien for many years, right? And uh, the idea that a Tolkien poem is talking about little winged elves, um, you know, little winged fairies, like, seems wildly discordant to us, right? Um, that's one way to understand what St. Brendan is seeing. Another way to understand it is, again, this is not, that it's not literal, right? What he's seeing is a representation. What he's seeing is what the elves want him to see, right? What he's seeing is, like, what the elves are communicating to him, not how they necessarily literally are. Not He's not necessarily seeing them in their true forms here. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, Brian, they, they aren't ever really described in... in uh, oh, right, saying, although they're not described in detail, this is reminding him of what I would think the Shadowy Isles guarding Valinor would be like. Yeah, though, again, shadow isn't exactly what's being associated here. Um, it's steeper the seas and the water's deep beyond the white tree strand. So it does, things do get rough going, Brian, after the white tree strand, after the beach of the white tree, right? Devora, exactly, that's just what I was thinking, that this seems to me to be likely a fairy in drama. This is an enchant, like the elves maybe are showing them this. Okay, so if this isn't an actual tree covered with actual leaves slash birds slash elves, uh, and in, if, 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 if that's not what's actually happening, then it is a representation that the elves are showing them, right? Or like enchanting them into, they are causing to unfold around them, right? In fairy and drama mechanism. Remember, we've just had fairy and drama, what, 20 pages ago, right? We were talking, we were recalling what fairy and drama was at the beginning of part two. Okay, it was more like, 40 pages ago, but still, we were just were talking about fairy and drama a few weeks back. So, yeah, Devorah, that seems to me, I would say that seems to me the likeliest explanation of what St. Brendan is experiencing here. They come to the beaches, which are strewn with pearls. Sounds like Elvenholm to me, right? Even maybe the shores of Valinor, but I think not probably Elvenholm because there are seas and waters beyond the White Tree Strand, right? It's probably Elvenholm. Um, but instead of being welcomed into the Cottage of Lost Play and told all the stories like Ariel was way back in the day, St. Brendan is being treated to a fairy and drama, which responds to his song, right? His song kicks it off. Um, when they start singing, St. Brendan and co., right? When they start singing, then the elves sort of start the show, right? They reveal themselves, or at least they reveal this to St. Brendan. Um, and what's, if this is a fairy and drama, then it's fair to ask us not only what is this, but what does it mean? Like, what are the elves communicating? What is the world? What is the story that St. Brendan is being drawn into by the fairy and drama that is unfolding around him? And my answer would be, this place isn't for you. Uh, one paraphrase of the message of the elves here would be something like, you can't touch this, right? Um, when you sing, like, you're, you being here, right? You being here, you singing your human songs, 
calls it, you see the beauty, right? He calls it the white tree stand. The beauty of this shining white tree is um, the first picture that St. Brendan is given, right? Here, behold the beauty of Elvenholm in this white tree, right? But if you try to, you know, sing your songs under this white tree, the whiteness of the tree itself will go away, right? It will, it will be left, um, you'll be left with a, with a, a barren tree and only echoes, right? And they're still there. They're still singing down. You can still hear the song in the distance, but yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a distant thing, right? You, this, this place isn't for you. Very nice to meet you. Now go home, uh, says Devorah. Yeah, something like that. Something like that. Exactly. Um, this is not a human realm. Um, you can't join us. Even like your song and our song is physically separated, right? Um, you might hear our song coming down to you from a distance, right? But, you know, we're not going to all join arms and sing together here on this island. You're not going to move in and live with us like you're kind of deeming, right? Like you're, like you're hoping, um, hoping for no return, right? That isn't going to, that isn't going to pan out. Um, would seem to be, again, a rather crude way of paraphrasing the message of the song here. All right. Over two. How about the star? Over two, I say, maybe I get half credit for the white tree, right? I was thinking of the white tree, which was, you know, the, uh, uh, this, the, the, uh, the, the, the predecessor of the white tree of Numenor. And so maybe I'm half right. You know, in that they reveal themselves or that, you know, the, the vision does center on this white tree, which is not clearly not. They're not actually seeing the white tree of uh, of 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 Elvenholm. Right. But the fact that the elves seem to reveal themselves in association with that image. Well, OK, so maybe uh, maybe I was partly right. I don't know. OK, so what about the star? The star was the one surely that we were most confident in. And uh here, St. Brendan doesn't even talk about it. His interlocutor in the poem has to ask him about it. Yeah, okay, that's great, uh, St. Brendan. But what about the star? The star, yes, I saw it, high and far, at the parting of the ways, a light on the edge of the outer night like silver set ablaze, where the round world plunges steeply down, but on the old road goes, as an unseen bridge that on arches runs to coasts that no man knows. Okay, let's do it again. The star? Yes, I saw it high and far at the parting of the ways. A light on the edge of the outer night like silver set ablaze where the round world plunges steeply down but on the old road goes as an unseen bridge that on arches runs to coasts that no man knows. Okay. I think I might be three quarters right about the star. At least, I think it is the star that of which we are all thinking. Um, but notice what he emphasizes about it. Okay, again, so what does he say? Okay, so it's high and far at the parting of the ways. What ways? In before reading anymore, we should already have a suspicion what ways we're talking about, right? The ways we're talking... The, what are the ways that generations and generations of Germanic peoples have been talking about, right? The straight way and the crooked ways, right? 
um, that seems to be the parting. So it's high and far at the parting of the ways, probably where the straight road, like at the entrance to the straight road, where the straight road leaves the rounded world. A light on the edge of the outer night, like silver set ablaze. Outer night. Huh. Come back to that. Where the round world plunges steeply down, but on the old road goes. Ah, okay. Confirmation. Definitely straight and crooked roads. Right? The crooked roads... They're going over, not over the edge of the world like Reaper Chief wishes he could do, but rather round it, right? It's, it's, uh, uh, it's continuing on down the round world, uh, but the old road continues off, right? Um, and, uh, okay. As an unseen bridge that on arches runs to coasts that no man knows. The old road is as an unseen bridge that on arches run. So it's like a it's like a high bridge, right, with arches under it, except you don't see it. You don't see the arches. Um, by the way, for uh, very attentive readers with uh, very retentive memories, um, arches, what should the arches make us think of? Anybody remember anything associated with the arches? Something vaguely Rainbow-like. Yeah, no, not McDonald's, Stephen. Those, those are not the arches that we're looking for. Definitely not. The Alora Male, the um, uh, the the Path of Dreams, right? The 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 rainbow arch that linked the elven the elvish lands, the places that like where the kids come, the kids travel the Alora Male in dreams, right, in order to get to the cottage of lost play. Um, or to the Cottage of Play, way back, way back, Volume One, first half of the Volume One, uh, back in the in the in the, at the very beginning of the Book of Lost Tales, uh, we heard about that um, in the oldest version of Tolkien's mythology, um, um, which is, of course, kind of like the road from Asgard to Mid uh, uh, to Midgard, like the Bifrost. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, not at all unlike the Bifrost. Not the same either, but not at all unlike it uh, as well. Um, anyway, I'm not saying that he's alluding to that. It's just uh, that idea of the arches connect, of arches connecting the one world and the other world, the mundane world of normal life and the world of Elvenholm, right? That's an old idea. Was associated with arches back in the day. Now it's an unseen bridge as if it's running on an arch, right? So I, I don't think... That line just does not seem to me to have totally forgotten the Alora Male, is all I'm saying. Um, but anyway, okay. To coasts that no man knows. Let's go back to Outer Night, then. Three-fourths of this little stanza um, seem pretty clearly to be talking about where the straight road diverges, right? So therefore... A light on the edge of the outer night, like silver set ablaze. Uh, the edge of outer night sounds like the the gates of of night, right? Like I mean, because there is an outer darkness, right? You pass through the uh, the gates of night, and I mean that's where like you shove Morgoth through the gates of night, right? Um, uh, it's like what you do. Um, so. Uh, that's what it sounds like at first, but I'm no longer convinced. Uh, I mean, after 
you know, reading the rest of those. I don't think that that's, that, that's my first thought when I hear on the edge of outer night. Um, but I'm, I don't think that that's the case. I think the edge of outer night means what's, so what, what is the unseen bridge crossing over, right? Um, the idea of an, of a bridge running on arches invites us to imagine, you know, an arch bridge, right? A road which runs across a bridge which is supported by arches. So we're invited to imagine a bridge, not just a road, not just a, 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 a path, you know, with nothing around it. We're imagining arches underneath a bridge, which means we're imagining a gulf that is being spanned by this bridge. And that is what seems to be outer night. What he's describing is outer night here. Um, there's, and yeah, I know, Devorah, we have no idea what the, or what the arches are anchored on, right? Uh, our, uh, our imagination is not summoned to, to, to detail quite that precise, right? Um, but, um, but in any case, yeah, it's, um, I, I think that the outer, so this experience of crossing this threshold, right, of, uh, of entering onto the straight road and seeing the rounded world falling away, it's plunging steeply down, right? Um, it's going to feel like upward movement being surrounded by well, you've left the world behind, so what are you surrounded by, right? Well, to St. Brendan, apparently, it looks like outer night. It looks like the outer darkness. Um, uh, which is interesting. Um, remember, St. Brendan does not seem to get to Valinor. Um, we've had, we have no evidence yet, right? The, the mountain turns out not to be that mountain, uh, the tree might have been at least reminiscent of that tree, but that was Elvenholm, definitely. And the star is back at the boundary where he first crossed over into this big adventure, right? Um, it doesn't seem that he gets any further, geographically speaking. It doesn't seem he gets any further than Elvenholm. And even there, he does not get to stay very long. And he does not linger anywhere near um, the, uh, uh, the sunken uh, uh, pillar of heaven either. Um, so he sees these things and he turns around and comes back, presumably. Um, Numenor, which is fallen. Elvenholm, which is not hostile. He's not attacked, right? Um, not hostile, but not welcoming. Certainly alien and keeping its distance from him, right? Not the land, literally but the inhabitants, and then the star, and this quite eerie experience of leaving the real world, his world, far behind, right? But he's come back. He's come back now. Why has he come back? What is St. Brendan's errand back to Ireland? What has he returned to Ireland to do? Anybody remember? What's his... What's his goal? What's his purpose? Yeah, Brian, he's come back to die. He's come back to die. He's returned to the mortal lands in order to fulfill his mortal destiny. This poem is called, frankly, calls it at the beginning, 
the death of St. Brendan. That's the theme of the poem, is St. Brendan returning to die. Um, one last portion here. This is the monk, his interlocutor in the poem, speaking first. But men say, Father, that ere the end you went where none have been. I would hear you tell me, Father dear, of the last land you have seen. I should have said been the first time. My apologies. In my mind the star I still can find, and the parting of the seas, and the breath as sweet and keen as death that was born upon the breeze. But where they bloom those flowers fair, in what air or land they grow, what words, what, worlds be, what words beyond the world I heard, if you would seek to know. In a boat then, brother, far afloat, you must labor in the sea, and find for yourself things out of mind. You will learn no more of me. So, uh, St. Brendan redefining lost tales here. Like when St. Brendan loses a tale, it stays lost, right? He refuses uh, to tell them anything more, right? The, the, the other monk wants to hear more about it, right? You have, ere the end, you went where none have been, right? I, tell me of the last land. Tell me what you saw. Tell me more about, you know, the lands that lie beyond the outer night, right, that you discovered. And he says, in my mind, I can still find that star and the parting of the seas. He doesn't say, I could take my ship out tomorrow and go back to the same place. It's in his mind. I still can find uh, the star and the parting of the seas. And the breath is sweet and keen as death that was born upon the breeze. So what does he tell the other monk? You have to experience it yourself. I can't tell you about it. You have to experience it. I can still experience it. I can still hear it. I can still feel it. Right? I can still smell it. I can still see it. Find it in my mind. So that idea of like in his mind finding the place of the parting of the seas, it's like in my mind I can journey there again. Right? I can re-experience that. I can smell those flowers again. But I can't convey that to you. Right? I can't tell you what it was like. Closest I could probably come would be to say smells like elves, right? But that's not going to do you very much good. And if you say that to people, they'll laugh at you. Um, so yeah, you've got to, if you want to know what it was like, you've got to experience it yourself. That's where he ends. That's where the poem ends, right? I've come back to die. Um, again, he's not saying like, I'm sworn to secrecy. He's not, um, you know, forbidding any. In fact, he's doing the opposite of forbidding, right? His uh, his friend, his follower from uh, from following, he's encouraging his follower to follow in his footsteps. Um, yeah, Brian, it should remind us of Raymer's discussion of how you can either remember a dream or write it down, but in telling it, you lose the memory and, and it becomes, the memory changes into what you, or rather the experience changes into the memory, right, into the narrative that you tell. Um, yeah, you can't, you can't communicate that. You just can't, right? Um, and as I said, going back to that mechanism, right? That mechanism of space and time travel. Um, it's St. Brendan has done something similar. St. Brendan's experience is something like 
Ramers. I mean, he was sailing in a physical boat, apparently, right, and found the physical straight road, apparently. Um, but, but there is clearly some similarity, Brian, exactly as you were implying there, between the experience that St. Brendan has had and the experiences that Raymer describes, right? Um, he has been there. But it's not unlike how Raymer has been there. Um, so, Brian, exactly. At the end, he's refusing to give his narrative because he's choosing to hold the experience, right? Not putting it into words and therefore losing it or therefore having it reduced only to those words into which he put it, right? That narrative that he gives. Um, he's going to keep more. Yeah, I think that's, that seems exactly right to me. Um, and again, it's not, he's not being selfish in doing that, right? Like, I'm going to keep it to myself and I'm not going to share it with you. He says, no, you, the only way you can, it's not going to satisfy you to hear a narrative and it's only going to reduce my own experience of it. Really, there's only one option, right? Get a, get a boat, get out there. Um, okay. So to no one's surprise, I spent most of the time talking about the poem, um, it is getting late. Peeking ahead. Um, well, let's, let's do this one because this is, uh, them talking about the St. Brendan poem. Um, they're talking about some of the early, the medieval source material. Still, that seems to be where you got your volcano and tree from. But you've given them a twist that's not in your source. Yeah, it's not exactly a normal tree, and it's not exactly a volcano either. You've put them in a different order, I think, making the tree further west, and your volcano is not a hell smithy, but apparently a last peak of some Atlantis. And the tree in St. Brendan was covered with white birds that were fallen angels. The one really interesting idea in the whole thing, I thought. They, they were angels that lived in a kind of limbo because they were only lesser spirits that followed Satan only as their feudal overlord and had no real part, by will or design, in the Great Rebellion. But you make them a third fair race. So here, and I'm forgetting who's speaking here. Um, it's not, frankly, uh, Marcuson, maybe? I can't remember exactly who it was speaking here. Um, but anyway, he's referring to the, the Voyage of St. Brennan, the, the medieval account of the Voyage of St. Brennan, which he didn't like. Right. He thought it was very unsatisfactory. Um, and um, but anyway, he's saying this was the one cool part. Right. The one cool part from the medieval uh, tale of St. Brendan is the bit with the tree and how the tree like the, the birds that are covering the tree are actually fallen angels that lived in limbo. Uh, right. Because they didn't really make a moral decision themselves, but they kind of sort of quasi fell. Right. And so from there, it's a very small step to saying actually they're elves, right? Especially since that's one of the theories that, um, you know, about what elves actually were. Oh, it's Loudham speaking there? Okay, right. Okay, cool. So it's, it's Loudham speaking in that first paragraph. Um, but you make of them a third fair race, huh? Yeah, maybe so. Um, and that bit about the round world and the old road, said Jeremy. Where did you get that from? I don't know, said Frankly. It came in the writing. I got a fleeting picture, but it's faded now. Yeah, can't imagine. Can't imagine where you got that, right? And how that comes in. Um, notice again one of the patterns here. This poem, St. Brendan, brought in by, frankly, apparently unrelated, right? Obviously not unrelated, but um, here we can see again 
I mean, I remember I called this class ancillary myths, right? The St. Brendan story is being brought in where we are, Tolkien is incorporating the St. Brendan's story and inviting us to see how it, um, I was about to say how it connects to or feeds into the Atlantis myth, the Numenorean myth that he's been unfolding. Like it's the other way around. How when you take, uh, that's the experience that Laudam is describing in that first paragraph. You take the St. Brendan story, the not really great St. Brendan story um, uh, from, uh, uh, from the medieval account, and you, you bring the Atlantis stuff into it. You bring the Atlantis stuff into contact with it. And now, all of a sudden, it's very different. The whole thing sounds different, right? You begin to discover things. You discover that the birds on the tree are not fallen angels. They're elves, right? You begin to discover that that thing that just looked like a volcano um, is not a volcano hell smithy. It is, in fact, the last peak of some Atlantis, right? It's the mental tarma. Um, Anyway, so, and the business about the round world and the old road, again, this is that glimpse of the myth in its original form, right? Um, the truth behind it, kind of like the Anglo-Saxon page in Numenorean script is the truth behind uh, the fragmentary myth of the crooked roads and the straight way. All right, um, then I think we move on after that, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. So we will come back next time to um, their, we'll, we'll, we'll run fairly quickly through their account of their travels in Cornwall and Ireland. Um, and then we'll get to Alfwina. And of, and in particular, what I'm going to be especially interested in is the story of King Sheev, which we didn't get to. Um, so let me, let me emphasize, let me, let me leave you with a question about King Sheev. What's going on in the story of King Sheev? How does that connect with the Numenorean story? If the Numenorean myth, as it is being revealed here through Laudam and Jeremy, especially by something like Raymer's method, if that uh, Atlantis myth brought into contact with St. Brendan reveals these new things and helps us to understand and contextualize the myth of St. Brendan in this new way here, how does it help us with King Sheaf? Right. Where do we end up with the King Sheev myth um, based on again, doing the same thing, bringing the Numenorean slash Atlantean story into contact with King Sheev, um, which is like the, the story of St. Brendan the Navigator, a kind of independent, semi-independent myth, Germanic myth um, of the foundling child who becomes the splendid king. Um, as Tolkien would tell you, uh, and as Christopher did tell you uh, in the Lost Road notes, uh, the King Sheev story, I mean, the, the beginning of Beowulf is a memory of the King Sheev story, the foundling child who becomes the great king, um, uh, you know, King Sheev of the Sheafings, right? At the beginning of Beowulf, Sheev, Sheev, it's like the same, it's an echo of that same story in the first 10 lines of Beowulf, right? Um, so when we, again, when we take what is being revealed as the true myth of Atlantis, of Numenor, which has exploded into the primary world already, and we bring that into contact with the King Sheev story, what do we learn? What do we find out? How do we understand the King Sheev story in this context? So we'll talk about that. Um, carry on reading. My plan 
Fingers crossed. My plan is to get through the Notion Club papers, the whole thing, to the end, in two more sessions. We're going to do two more sessions on the Notion Club papers, and then we're going to do the drowning of Anadune. So we're going to, we'll, 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 that's the plan. Um, I'm pretty sure that's the plan, <laughs> if it wasn't three. Anyway, two, our at most three more uh, uh, sessions uh, on the Notion Club papers. So go ahead and read. Uh, through to the end, I would say. Just keep in mind that's the pace that we're going to be on. I'm, I'm, I'm abandoning giving exact page numbers uh, for the classes from here on in, but it's not too much text. So um, be prepared to go through the end of uh, the, the, the Numenor section in the next couple uh, uh, classes or so. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining me. Good night, and I will see you guys next week. Bye now. <laughs>